Catherine Nichols here with Elisa Gabbert, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1988, and our book is The Wine Dark Sea by Robert Aikman. We also have a guest today, Kathleen Rooney, uh, is with us too. She's the author of many books, most recently Share Me and Major Whittlesey. Um, and you've probably heard of her book, Lillian Box's Fish Takes a Walk, which was a national bestseller. And in your local bookstore, no doubt, right this second. Uh, she also teaches at DePaul University. For our book, The Wine Dark Sea, um, it's a collection of what Aikman calls strange stories, uh, sometimes fit into the horror genre. Um, we're talking about two of them in particular. There's a title story, The Wine Dark Sea, and there's one called The Inner Room. And it's hard to summarize for once because there is too much plot that is relevant. Um, too many turns and details that I think you'll want to know. Um, but the outline of the first one is that tourist in Greece sees an island and he wants to visit it, but no one will take him there from the mainland. Um, he steals a boat and when he gets there, he finds that it's supernaturally beautiful and inhabited by three beautiful women who call themselves uh, enchantresses or sorceresses. Uh, they tell him that he can never return and that how they live how everyone used to live before, before the world was slowly ruined. He lives with them in an Edenic state of pleasure, sustained by the island itself. And eventually, another mainland person comes to the island and kills it. And the women explain that the island was the last living rock in the world, and now it's dead. The other story, The Inner Room, is about a girl who gets an old dollhouse for her birthday. It's sealed on all four walls, but she can see the dolls through the windows. She can't play with them directly. Um, it also doesn't have a kitchen. Her brother discovers that it has. It must have some kind of inner room based on the dimensions of the outside and the size of the visible rooms. Um, and her parents just get rid of it one night. And then 30 years pass in which the girl grows up. And then there's a time when she's feeling very alone and abandoned. Um, her father died, her family drifted apart, and she got married, and her husband never returned from World War II. And she finds this house, again, but life-sized, and when she goes in, she finds that the dolls are people who have been waiting for her to look after them and repair their belongings and give them clothes. And uh, There's actually no way that I can adequately describe the ending, but as simply as possible, they offer to show her where we eat, and she says she did nothing, and she leaves. The way I describe both of those endings is not good enough, but both of them only really make sense with the level of detail that would just be me reading the stories aloud. So I hope that'll be enough for you to understand our conversation. Um, and here it is. All right. So Kathleen, um, you recommended that we read some stories from The Wine Dark Sea by Robert Aikman. Actually, is it Aikman or Eichmann? Aikman. Aikman. Good. That's how I was saying it. <laughs> um, so what, uh, what brought you to Robert Aikman? How did you discover him? Why did you want to talk about him? Yeah. So I think I came to Aikman like a lot of people who have come to him in recent years through uh, the New York Review of Books Classics. They did um, Compulsory Games in 2018, which was a collection of, I think, never before collected or at least not in that order under one cover strange stories by Aikman. And I am a fan of much of what they publish. And so I was just interested in that. And I also kind of like scary things, but more than pure horror, I do find strange tales and we can 
kind of talk about that definition down the road if we want to uh, more. And so I read it and I was smitten. And it was one of those things where not only did I want to just read it and savor it for myself, I was kind of like pushing the book on other people. Like I had uh, Martin, um, my husband, who's also a writer, read it. And then my friend Shane, who's also a writer and um, Shane read it and loved it too. And so we kind of became like joint Eichmann fans or Aikman fans. I'm saying it wrong. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <but laughs> I planted doubt. <laughs> I, I didn't know either. And in fact, I, I realized like with so many things you learn by reading, you don't know the pronunciation. So I watched, um, there's this YouTube documentary, maybe you have seen it. Uh, it's just like a 53 minute kind of fan documentary on Aikman. And I, I watched it partly out of curiosity and partly to make sure that I was ready for this. And that's how they say it. So um, but anyway, so Shane, um, back in October of last year, October 2020, kind of a horrifying time, got from the Chicago Public Library, The Wine Dark Sea. And he just wanted to read more of these stories. And he emailed me after he read the first one, the title story, The Wine Dark Sea, and was just really, really eager to talk about it. It just struck him and he wanted someone else's opinion. And so he even sent me the PDF of it. And I am a professor at DePaul University. And like most people who teach this year and just many people, I've been exclusively remote, exclusively online. And so I told him, I love Aikman and I want to talk about this with you. But to be honest, I'm not going to read a PDF. Like I, I just don't have it in me to look at a screen more, even if it's something that's good. And so Shane... Um, because he's an awesome friend and also really enthusiastic, just got on his bike. It was a stormy day. Like it was rainy. It was like Aikman-esque. It was October and biked it up um, like eight miles and delivered the book to my door. Cause he's like, you've got to read this. (laughs) And it was, I was so grateful. It was awesome. Um, And it was, what's extra funny is it was a library book. Cause I was like, Oh, I'll just get it from the library and talk about it in a couple days. And he's like, no, this is the only edition in the library and I have it. Ah! um, Yeah. So, so then I read it right away and, and he and I talked about it. And so I think, I don't know. I like that story because it's funny about shame, but it also, I think speaks to how if Aikman speaks to you, or if the strangeness has its effect on you, it's the kind of thing that you really want to have somebody else there to be like, did you see that? How did he do that? What was that? You know, it's the thunder rumbling. I don't know if you can hear it. I hope you can in Denver right now. And it's like starting <laughs> to storm a little bit. It's so perfect. Perfect. <laughs> perfect atmosphere. It's funny because we, um, I looked on our shelves and it turned out we already had a couple of Aikman collections, not the one that you wanted us to read. And I was like, oh, well, I actually, I knew that we had the NYRB one because we get almost everything from NYRB. Yeah. Um, and so I asked, John, my husband, who you know, of course, you, who you both know, like, hey, have you read this yet? And he was like, no, Adam Galaski, who you also know, loves him. And so I've been meaning to read him, but, you know, he just hasn't really grabbed me. And so we had another older edition of um, Cold Hand and Mine on our shelf also. And so I now have three <laughs> collections of, of Aikman that I've only just started to dip into. But um, yeah, I was, I don't know, I think... I had I wasn't sure if I was gonna like him or not. I don't know why. I think because John was just like, eh, it's not really my thing. Um, I loved these, the two that I read. I yeah. loved them, especially the second one, the inner room. So yes. I felt that way too. I thought that the inner room. I kept like taking notes as I was reading it in a way that 
it, it actually kind of helped me read The Wine Dark Sea also. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that makes sense. And I think if I had started with The Wine Dark Sea, I'm not sure I would have been as over the moon as, you know, having read compulsory games. And I think, so what I like in the... Um, in the edition of Wine Dark Sea, because the, there's two now, as I've discovered, because I got another one from the library that's the Faber edition, which doesn't have all the stories and doesn't have the Peter Straub introduction mm-hmm. from 1988. And that's the same one I have. Yeah, yeah, which is a bummer because there's, I, I don't know, I just, I, I specifically like the collection, the Wine Dark Sea. Um, but in his intro, Peter Straub said that very good horror writers often demonstrate that ordinary life can be horrific and tedious at once for the sensitive person. And one suspects it was for Aikman. So I think for me, like he's at his best when he's doing that kind of subtle thing. Like it's such a cliche to sort of say like, you know, the real world is horrifying enough, but he does (laughs) it in a way that's so nuanced and so like slow burn esque. And I feel like, the Wine Dark Sea is simultaneously super aikman and also a little more explicit. And so I think if I had to sort of describe the difference between like the Wine Dark Sea and the inner room, there's lots just from like a third person narration to a first person narration. But I feel like the Wine Dark Sea is almost like the grant application story or the mission statement <laughs> story. <laughs> you know, it's Aikman being like, you want to know what I'm about? Like, this is what I'm about. Whereas the other ones are a little more like slow creepers. Yeah. I re- I read this quote in Into the Wood that what you what you just said about sort of real versus unreal um reminded me of where I think a character says this in Into the Wood, dreams are misleading because they make life seem real. Yes. Um and yeah, I feel like in both stories there's this slippage where sometimes it feels like, wait, maybe had this has become a dream. Maybe these characters don't know if they're in a dream or not. Totally. And I think that to me is, so I think like part of what I like about him, and it also makes sense to me that you say that Adam Golaski is a fan, is that slippage and is that sort of subtlety? Because things start off so normal and almost even boring in a way. Like in, you know, Wine Dark Sea, it's just Grig, this typical British tourist, this, you know, solitary man who's just kind of on, you know, granted he's alone and not on like a cruise package, but just what seems like a very typical Northern European going to Greece to kind of have his holiday. And then it slips into something else. And like the inner room, similarly, it just starts in this kind of banal scenario where this family has broken down by the side of the road and their car just overheated and the dad's incompetent and they need to stop in town and get help. And then it just goes places that are hard to see, but he does it in a way that I think I just like the way he doesn't really announce himself. And I think what, what else is interesting is in the, um, I think the Peter Straub introduction is so good, like good to the point where it would make sense to, to try to track it down just to read it. But he, he makes a comparison in it to, um, Clive Barker and sort of says, you know, Clive Barker, one of our contemporary horror writers who's still living in the 80s and very popular, um, has this great story called In the Hills, the Cities, you know, and and Straub is kind of saying, I think that, you know, Barker is almost like an inheritor or someone who would really appreciate what Aikman is doing. And I I was surprised by that because to me, Barker seems a lot more overt, but I, 
I went and tracked down in the hills, the cities to read it. And I found it really disappointing because it didn't have that subtlety and it didn't have that slippage, it just signposted the horrifying elements so much. And yeah. you know, on, on that and like the difference to, to be a little pedantic because I'm a professor and it's fun, <laughs> like the difference between horror and terror. Like I think, you know, it's, it's weird to get into labels and I know Aikman really hated being called a horror writer. Like he, he bristled at that and was like, no, I write strange stories. And I think he's right. I think he's not just being like a hair splitter because like, you know, terror is the feeling of dread an anticipation that precedes a horrifying experience. And then horror is the feeling of revulsion that typically follows the frightening thing. And I think to me, like reading the Barker right after the Aikman, because Peter Straub told me to, made me realize like Barker is for sure a horror writer. Like he he dwells in like the spectacle of the revolting thing. Whereas Aikman definitely is more in the terror slash strange zone where you feel it's like suspense and, and you just feel so unsettled for so long before you even see anything horrifying. If you ever do. I think that's one of the things that I loved about the, um, the inner room, which is the the story about a haunted dollhouse Uh, because you spend so much time in the real world where in the wine dark sea, once he, once the, uh, point of view character gets to the island he's the strangeness is everywhere and the uncanny rules of this enchantress's island uh that we're sort of learning them alongside him whereas the the dollhouse story it felt like a family story with just these little elements of strangeness and it it was that that feeling that you don't quite know which of these are normal family things and which of these are slightly enchanted, like the beginnings of terror. The entire story was in that uncanny zone of not quite knowing when things are going to completely blow up. Yeah. So yeah, the Wine Dark Sea, it kept reminding me of movies. <laughs> I don't know if you had this experience too, but it, it felt very like... I don't know. It was just sort of steeped in like the cultural milieu of the seventies in a way where like um, that, I don't know. It reminded me of that scene in Monty Python and search for the Holy grail. (laughs) That one night ends up in the castle with all the women who are trying to seduce him. (laughs) Um, And like, I kept thinking of hotel California. (laughs) Yes, totally. (laughs) I don't know. It just, it kept reminding me of like other cultural touchstones. Um, but then I, I didn't have that experience at all with the inner room. I mean, even though I really like the wine dark sea, the inner room felt so much more just singularly strange and like its structure. Like I loved the way it just suddenly jumped forward in time. Actually, let me, I marked the passage. Um, I went just like out of <laughs> my mind. I love that. So much. <laughs> yeah. Where she suddenly like, um, 
the next 30 years more or less can be disposed of quickly. It was yes. the period when I tried <laughs> conclusions with the outer world. And then she like sums up the rest of her life and then jumps back in the next paragraph. My father died in a street accident when I was 15. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I oh, loved totally. that. Yeah, like on page 316 after that, where she says, so much for biographical intermission, I proceed to the circumstances of my second and recent experience of landlordism. And you're just like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, I I had no, like, I had no expectations for that story, essentially. Like, it just like when I started reading it, I was like, what kind of story is this? What kind of story is this? And I, I just, it wasn't allowing me to form expectations I kept doing something different than I thought I would do. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the feeling that I I really like about him. And I think that's why I also, again, sometimes when people get very persnickety about labels, I mean, I run Rose Metal Press, so I love hybrid genre and I love stuff that like breaks rules or defies expectations. So there is, I think, a handiness to labeling, but I think also labeling can get kind of fussy. But I think his insistence on himself as a strange tale writer as opposed to a horror writer makes a lot of sense. And I think it's because like what he to me seems to be evoking both in the wine dark sea and the inner room and most things is um, like just this very strong sense of the supernatural and less so than something horrifying or, or explicitly scary. And cause the supernatural, even though it gets associated with, you know, ghosts and monsters and things that go bump in the night, which, you know, connote negative consequences, I think just the neutral definition is just kind of like that, which is above or beyond the natural. And then also sometimes kind of referring to some kind of order that's not visibly observable. And, you know, a lot of times that is, you know, God or spirits or like the devil. But I think he uses the supernatural in both ways. Like in in some cases, it is scary and it's upsetting. And he has stories like that we you know didn't decide to discuss, like the fetch, which is much more an explicit kind of Scottish ghost story where the fetch appears when someone's about to die. Um, but as often as not, I think he's using the supernatural not to be scary, but to show that something else that's just taken as natural and acceptable is scary. And I think Catherine, to your point, like about the inner room how it's hard to tell what's outside the normal and what's just family stuff. I think that's why it's such a great story. It's, it's like subtly critical of the psychodrama of the nuclear family in a way. And, and I think, I don't know, I just, I like that he uses the supernatural both to be kind of scary and then also to kind of enchant things that seem disenchanting. Well, so I was reading it almost as a, like a rewriting almost or a reference to uh to the lighthouse of Virginia Woolf but yeah. it's most famous for having that move of like a childhood family uh situation where there's some unfinished business that the children have and then there's this massive jump forward in time in which most of the people die and then you um kind of revisit this childhood obsession but unlike into the lighthouse where the children only sort of get to the lighthouse when they no longer care and it's it kind of is meaningless and and uh like a gesture rather than a trip um uh, by the time they actually sort of try um that when she revisits her unfinished business with this dollhouse, 
it's not over. The fact that she has neglected it that long turns out to be crucial. Yeah. And that feeling of like, well, the mother like moved to Germany and turned into a Nazi and the father died in a car accident and the brother sort of put away everything that he'd been interested in and became a Jesuit priest. And it's like, is that just family stuff or is that somehow the fact that she didn't maintain her duty to the dollhouse? Yeah. And you get like all that. And then you get the questions. I think all those are questions. And I think that's one of the reasons that Aikman is great is he doesn't answer it. Like there's no, you get usually to the end of one of his stories and there's not an explanation. And I think you also get sort of like the twinned story of whatever bad business was unfinished in the dollhouse, because you have all these sisters with their gemstone names like Emerald and Turquoise and you get the impression there that there was like a similar kind of messed up power dynamic with the father doll in there, but you never totally get it either. And then you also in the outside world of, of the real, you know, the real people who are not dolls, you get, I think it's really interesting the way that the dad, the first time they're in the bazaar and see the dollhouse and the girl wants it. He says it, it looks like a prison. He's like, Oh, it looks like this jail. And then you kind of get gradually these little details about him, about how he he can never really hold a job and how he's, you just don't know. He seems like he has this dark past. And I wonder, like, was he a prisoner? Did he do some kind of crime or is he just like a ne'er-do-well? And I, I think it's like to Aikman's credit that he he wants you probably to ask all that, but he he doesn't get to the end of the story and then tie it up. Yeah, yeah it's there's more untied than tied definitely at the end. And yet it's satisfying as an ending. I thought. Yeah, no, me too. And I think part of why it's satisfying in both cases, and I I would still say, I think the wine dark sea is a little more tending toward explanation than his other stories, but still maintains its strangeness. But he's also a super, I guess like aphoristic kind of writer or the kind of writer I love it when a story is like super suspenseful and engrossing, but then also just stops and says something that just seems like really poetic or like lapidary. Like it's just, you want to like carve it in stone. And like on, um, in my page 320 in, um, or excuse me, 314 in the inner room, it's kind of after this encounter that the the protagonist has with her brother and her mother who seem to be sort of conspiring against her to maybe get rid of the dollhouse because it's, you know, something's weird about it. And she just says, she too was one I had never known to lie, but now I began to perceive how relative and instrumental truth could be. And it's just, he'll, he'll just pause and like drop in one of these like pinpoints of, of like wisdom or wit or like crystal observation and then just like move on with the story. And I just, I really like that too. I have a passage here that I wanted to, to read to um, that's it's her expecting how her life will go and also reporting how her life actually does go at the same time. And it's part literal truth and part metaphor. Um, I'm just going to read the paragraph. All this naturally was in the holidays I was going at the time to one of my mother's schools where I should stay until I could begin to train as a dancer upon which I was conventionally, but entirely resolved. Constantine went to another highly cerebral co-educational place where he would remain until inevitably he won a scholarship to a university, perhaps a foreign one. Despite our years, we went our different ways dangerously on small dingy bicycles. 
We reached home at assorted hours, mine being the longer journey. Um, that is both a description of how they're conducting their lives, what their expectations are, and also what they actually do during that 30 year. I just thought it was like some remarkably lovely writing. The yeah, writing is so great. <laughs> like I, want to read? I feel, when I got to the end of the wine dark sea, I, you know, I, maybe I wasn't like super blown away by the story itself on a, on a level, but I loved the, like the sentence and paragraph level writing. Like I marked a lot of lines. I found it sort of very witty and very beautiful. Um, I do have a passage from that story. I want to read, although I also want to just like one part I marked was um, this paragraph where, where he ends the the paragraph um, with just a little sentence fragment, which I think sentence fragments are so like emotional and underrated. Um, Greg lay listening to the lapping, trickling waves, smelling the night flowers. Was it never cooler or colder than this? Never. Yes. Love that. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> um, but yeah, and then a little, a few pages later and the wine dark sea, um, Ineffable, he thought, was the only word for such beauty. Faint gray, faint blue, faint pink, faint green, and the entire atmosphere translucent right through to the center of the Empyrean and on to the next center, as if, while it lasted, distance was abrogated and the solitary individual could casually touch the impersonal core of the universe. Yes. I think that's another thing that I, I like too. And that, you know, again, I don't want to like just drag Clive Barker, but I think <laughs> <Drag> <laughs> I will him. a little, um, just that focus on the other stuff, like the focus on setting and the focus on like turn of phrase, as opposed to just like whatever scary thing is at the core of the story. And I think, um, like, I don't know, I, having watched the documentary, which I, I recommend, it's just 53 minutes. Um, I think I feel like for me, I think the reason I'm so smitten with him too, and this happens a lot with writers I like, and I think it probably happens to a lot of readers. I, I don't just like the story, but I feel like there's something so personal and so distinctive about the way it's written that I get a sense of the person who wrote it. And I start thinking, and I know this can be like problematic and a weird road to go down, but I start thinking like, I think I would like Aikman as a person. Like I think there's just some like essential expression of his values or like who he is. And I think for me, especially in Wine Dark Sea, I like Elisa that you said, <laughs> like that kind of 70s vibe, like with all the women. Uh -huh. But I think, so I think he's for me, strangely like conservative, but also evolved in a way, not just on gender, but overall. And I think he reminded me of like Edgar Allan Poe and Raymond Chandler in the sense that it's clear that both of these writers, like kind of in their stories and the values the stories express, and then also biographically, if you look into it, that they tended toward like kind of a dark romanticism, which I think is almost always kind of conservative, but it's not necessarily, I mean, Poe is definitely problematic in his elitism and views on race and things like that. But I think Aikman's conservatism is more, um, like he doesn't seem to harbor to me like a dangerous nostalgia. Like he seems to be kind of... Um, like wanting to conserve things that deserve to be conserved. And I think like in the wine dark sea, you get all this stuff about like on page 29 in my book where he's having this conversation with Leck, who's one of these three, these three women who sort of govern this paradisical Island that, you know, apparently all the world used to be like, 
he says um, of contemporary Greece, as a matter of fact, I've noticed something like that. It is not a country for women. And then she responds, once it was, we ruled, but they drove us out. We fought and later they wrote silly plays about the fight, but they defeated us, though not by the superior strength on which they pride themselves so much. How then? By changing our world into a place where it was impossible for us to live. It was impossible for them to live in such a world also, but that they were too stupid to know. They defeated us in the same way that they have defeated everything else that is living. And I think, again, I love that part. (laughs) And I don't know, I guess I have that tendency too to think like, I don't, you know, it's that whole like the real world is plenty horrifying. And I think that captures it. And like the way that to go to his biography, which I think is interesting too, the fact that his other big thing, like even if he weren't known for being a strange tale writer, he'd probably be moderately as famous in that kind of minor way for his work on the Inland Waterways Association in the UK, where he was super instrumental in in preserving all these canals. And I think, I don't know, that just that's that's what I mean by the kind of conservatism that's there. It's like a desire to conserve things that are beautiful and worthy, not necessarily to like return to some icky old paternalistic order. Well, one thing I noticed about both stories, and I, I think that it, it fits in with what you're saying really well, is that once the supernatural is revealed to the extent that it ever is revealed, it is not more powerful than the human characters. It's fragile and valuable. It, yeah. It's sort of uh, damaged by its interaction with the human characters. And I think that that passage about the... Um, about changing the world and the natural world and all living things. It, it really gets to the idea that the supernatural may be frighteningly outside your understanding, but that doesn't mean that it's not in some ways an endangered species. Yeah, totally. And I think uh, that's definitely, again, kind of something that I think keeps me coming back to his stories. Like it's in there, but he does it over and over in ways where you're looking at it from sort of different angles. And I think, um, I don't know, I think this is changing. I think he's getting more recognized and, and more popular, but I think in his lifetime, he wasn't as known. And the documentary pointed out that he was super happy. Um, in 1975, he won a world fantasy award for a story, which I haven't read, but I really want to read. I just requested the book that it's in from the library called pages from a young girl's journal and it appeared just in like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction um, in 1973 and he won and he was like finally (laughs) like a prize and also a chance to like give a speech or like write an essay so he you know he got to write an essay in response to to this acknowledgement and he said I won't read a ton but he said I believe in what the Germans term erfurcht reverence for things one cannot understand Faust's error was an aspiration to understand and therefore master things which by God or by nature are set beyond the human compass. He could only achieve this at the cost of making the achievement pointless. And I think, I mean, that's kind of a version of what I just read from the wine dark sea, but I think also this animating spirit behind so many of his stories that it's, yeah, like the the enchanted world, the supernatural world is very real, but very fragile. And that the the human tendency, and especially I think the kind of like masculine, you know, traditionally quote unquote male human tendency to want to dominate it is always self defeating. I think there's a real relationship when when you when you're talking about kind of 
delicacy and vulnerability of the supernatural um, with just like the Freudian sense of the unconscious. I mean, also, of course, with the unheimlich. Um, but I just, I, I see this, the quote unquote supernatural, um, yeah, not as being scary so much as just being like submerged and mysterious. And those parts of the stories feel like dreams that are open to interpretation. Um, and I think of this Adam Phillips book that I recently read where he talked a lot about like the value of going in for um, psychotherapy is that like, it helps you redescribe yourself to yourself. <laughs> I love yeah. that word, like redescription. So it's not really about finding like one final interpretation um, because, you know, you're always sort of endlessly ambiguous to yourself, but um, just finding like a useful way to redescribe a feeling or an impulse or a habit or a dream that you keep having um, in terms that like make your, make yourself interesting to yourself again, essentially. And I feel like that is something that's going on in these stories where, I mean, similar to what you were saying earlier, Catherine, where it's hard to tell what is kind of the result of the haunting yeah. <laughs> versus just um, the result of some like weird family dynamics or something that was going on with their father. Um, and yeah, you can never really know. It's just sort of open to interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I read somewhere too, or maybe it was in the documentary that he was really fascinated with this idea of Freud specifically and the unconscious and also this kind of, you know, pop science fact that, you know, not exactly that we only use, you know, one tenth of our brain, but kind of something like the conscious takes up only one tenth of, of whatever else is in there. And that he definitely was trying to use the stories as a way to show that unknowability and that mystery. And then also kind of give, glimpses of it and there's I think moments in the stories definitely in the inner room but in lots of the other stories like one that I I would have also loved to discuss that I recommend people listening I mean I recommend all of them but um the next glade is similar like just this these people kind of wandering and and almost losing a sense of themselves or losing Elisa like that ability to describe themselves to themselves and it's in the inner room on page 320 in my book where she's wandering, you know, toward the end through the marshland and, and coming close to sort of the climax of, of this unfinished business. And she says, the track I had been following still stretched ahead as yet not too indistinct. And I continued to follow it as the trees around me became bigger and thicker. Fear came upon me, though not the death fear of that previous occasion. I felt now that I knew what was going to happen next, or rather I felt I knew one thing that was going to happen next, a thing which was but a small and but a small and far from central part of an obscure, inapprehensible totality. As one does on such occasions, I felt more than half outside my body. If I continued much further, I might change into somebody else. And I think I just, I love it. So, yeah. 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 The, the next glade. Um, I think I read a description of that too. That sounds that it's, sometimes they're a little bit more Kafka-esque, right? I mean, you've read a lot more mm -hmm. of his work than I have, um, but just in that yeah. kind of like endless search for something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a lot of the stories do seem to like be endless searches or also like, I think on the occasions that he does, you know, like conclude the search, it, it is usually more negative. Like there's a story called Never Visit 
Venice, I think is, is what it's called. And it's, it's similar to Wine Dark Sea in that, you know, a guy goes and he visits Venice, oops, and it like doesn't go well. He, <laughs> you know, and he, I, spoiler alert, like plug your ears if you don't want to know, but I mean, it's a really satisfying story, but you get, you know, he's sort of this almost, you know, just super solitary, like almost incel kind of character who, who seems to have like problematic views of women and sort of just be unsatisfiable. But then he meets this, you know, mystery woman in Venice. And then it ends with him sort of like literally going to his death. He's in a gondola going out past the Lido into the open sea. And of course, you know, the woman proved ephemeral and is gone. And he's, he's kind of figured it out and gotten what he wanted, which was his death. It just seems like, you know, the death drive is a, a big one in here, obviously. Oh yeah. Greg's, Greg's got that too. Yeah, there's some part where he's there's some sign. I can't remember what the sign is, but he said like, "Ah, oh, fate is with me," and I was I wrote <laughs> no in the margin, <laughs> like all signs point to yeah. no. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah, the um, the uh, its inner room is up. Sorry, I'm forgetting the title. Um, that that story also has this sense that she's searching for death in some lurking way because she has this feeling of, of being abandoned and that that's when the dollhouse finds her again is um, I I had this feeling that there was something in the way that she feels that she has been abandoned by uh, her mother and then her husband where each of those departures is sort of something that makes sense. Like her, her husband is missing at war and her mother like went back to her home country, Germany. And it's theoretically. It was a little ambiguous on that front about where the husband went, wasn't it? Like he might've died or he might just have not returned. Yeah. Yeah. But the way that she feels stung about it, like she feels emotionally like he abandoned her, even if he was actually just missing at war. The, oh no! I mean this. Yeah, I just mean the story itself. Um, yeah, doesn't, doesn't want you to know. Well, and she tells her mother, "You can leave. I'm fine." And then her mother writes her twice a week, and she doesn't reply to her mother's letters, and she still registers that as her mother abandoning her, and that she would never have married her husband if her mother had not done that. Like, there's a feeling of psychological tension around that. Does not. Uh, it's not that she's reacting to the actual things that happened. It's that she's reacting to the feeling of the things that happened and that, that she's been abandoned by all, all her connections and all her sense of order in the world. And that's when she finds the dollhouse again. And it's full of women who are sort of contradicting what they say. And it's, they're accusing each other of lying and, she herself is lying. It does feel like she has encountered her unconscious mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that she doesn't like it. Like she doesn't like what she sees there in a way. Yeah. And won't like, she's, she's interesting. I think it's, I think Aikman has done something that is hard to achieve and that he's kind of written a mostly passive, protagonist like there is her inciting desire she you know it's her birthday they go to the toy shop she says I want the dollhouse and she's super adamant about that and she gets it but after that like even in some of the parts we've read you know like she 
kind of very perfunctorily becomes a dancer and she kind of like marries this guy just because he, I think she says he's the first to arouse physical passion in me. Um, you know, so she's, she's kind of like almost sleepwalking through her life. And even when the dollhouse gets taken away, she's a little upset, but also kind of like fine with it. And I think, I don't know, it's, it's interesting that it's such an interesting story about a character who is so passive. And I think that's part of what she ends up kind of seeing. And I don't want to like tack an explanation. And I, I don't think this is the only way to take the story at all. But like at the very end, you know, when she encounters the dollhouse a second time, and has kind of had this conversation with the the sisters. First, two things. I just love the part where they show her the photograph and it says, it was a photograph of myself when a child bobbed and wasteless and through my heart was a tiny brown needle. I'm just like amazed by how good that is. Um, yeah. Just as a sentence in a moment. <laughs> um, but then, it's never really explained either. No, no. And I think that's what I mean. She, she's clearly seeing something and it's horrible and upsetting, and but she just moves on. And doesn't really seem to to confront it. And then she has another opportunity to kind of confront it or maybe admit something or let's like admit both in the sense of like confess to something and admit like let something in where it says on the threshold or somewhere on the far side of it, I spoke. I did nothing. I said nothing. So far from applying, she dissolved into the darkness and silently shut the door. And I think that's kind of like the beautiful ambiguity of Aikman too, where she's that statement is true. I did nothing. I said nothing. Like she did nothing. She was maddeningly passive through almost all of the story and like consistently refuses to kind of account for her own like power in a lot of these things. Like Catherine, like you were saying, like these abandonments, like she didn't write her mom back, you know, stuff like that. Um, You know, so she was passive and didn't do much, but then also like, and there's that earlier <laughs> Well, there's the earlier part where she's trying to so this dollhouse is unusual in that it's sealed in all all the walls are sealed. There isn't an open area that you can play in, like most dollhouses. And she wants to open it to see inside. And her father suggests, like, oh, you can unscrew it in all these different ways, like, but she thinks that, that would be violent against the house to do. And so she just only wants to try things that she knows won't work. Yeah. And I think by the end, it turns out that she should have paid attention to what was inside the dollhouse. That that was a a duty that she had failed at. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like the, the articulation of I did nothing is technically true, but also it seems to be like she wants to be blameless for yeah. that. And, yeah. and by the end, it's like clear that she, she isn't blameless. I love the brother character too. Yeah, Constantine. (laughs) The the scene with the axonometric projections. So excellent. um, One day I returned to find our dining room table littered with peculiarly uninteresting printed drawings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I loved that. It was uh, it was one of the moments that just reminded me that the stories are often very funny. Like the yeah, they're very funny. And that that uh, that scene creates, I don't know, for me at least, like something that's impossible to picture. Like they're asking you to picture a dollhouse that has a room missing. Like all the rooms are not accounted for. How is that possible? Um, like I don't know what to picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> totally. 
But you can picture like Constantine, which I think is, again, that yes. like blending of the unpicturable or the ineffable with something that's like so specifically graspable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like Constantine it, in the beginning too, when he like wants the telegraph poles or whatever and can't get them. And then it's just like, I don't want anything. <laughs> <laughs> but then it, that's never explained either. I thought that the telegraph poles were going to turn out to be some like electrical current that's keeping the dollhouse in line while it's for sale or something, you know, because they say that the previous owner of the dollhouse had taken it to the toy shop because she had to get rid of it. And I was like, Oh, okay. This is like the sinister. It's just, it wasn't at all the story that he was telling. Yeah. Yeah. He it's, it's not quite a red herring because it's not that important, but I feel like that's another one of his, like when you, if you're inclined to be like, how's he doing this? Like, how is Aikman achieving this effect? I think that's, he'll do that in a lot of other stories too, where he'll give you something so precise that it seems like a breadcrumb you're supposed to pick up and follow. And then it it isn't, but it's not in any kind of tricky gotcha way. It's just, I don't know. I just feel like he does that a lot, which I find appealing. Yeah. It's like the zigzags of the sentences themselves. So it seems like the sentence is going one place. It goes a different place at the very last minute frequently. Yes. And yeah, I, I think that the, um, the idea that there's something sinister going on in that hidden room, they refer to it later as like the place where we eat. And it's yeah. sinister that there isn't a kitchen that's visible, but it actually is not dangerous to her. To no, totally. uh, Lena, the um, the main character. And also, I mean, I think it's not, and it's also, it's hard to say because she's so like deliberately incurious in a way. And I think that's one of the things that makes me like Constantine too, is that at least until we, we get in that amazing sweeping summary that he kind of just turned his back on a lot of stuff and became a priest. But like at the beginning, he seems like he's the curious inquisitive one who is going to kind of like get to the bottom of things or even when he makes his first appearance on like the very first page of the story um she says um i had the trick of reading before my third birthday but i mostly left the practice to my younger brother constantine he was reading now from a pudgy volume as thick as it was broad and resembling his own head in size and proportion (laughs) which is another one of these hilarious moments um but kind of sets up both of their characters and and she's certainly kind of the more uh, just sort of accept things as they are, don't look too deep kind of person. Yeah, I thought that he had turned into a priest possibly because he wanted to create order out of what he had seen in the dollhouse. Like somehow the dollhouse had like shaken him off one path and put him on another path. But the story does not support that interpretation. It doesn't take that interpretation away. It's just more obvious than what he actually does. Yeah. Well, and I think even that moment when we, we get that is kind of like weirdly chilling and strange. Like it says, Constantine abandoned all his versatile reading and became a priest. In fact, a member of the society of Jesuits, he seems exalted, possibly too much so for his colleagues and superiors, but I can no longer speak to him or bear his presence. He frightens me. Poor Constantine. <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> what did happen? I found that line about the room where we eat incredibly ominous. Yeah. Yeah, I thought they were going to eat her. 
Yeah, that's where we eat humans who own yeah. us. Yeah. And our bad landlords and neglectful. <laughs> like, I thought, yeah, I definitely felt that too when she encounters them in their life-sized forms because of the way the one sister keeps touching her. And, you know, the other sister's like, don't touch her. And she's like, I'm going to just keep touching her and just like grabbing her clothes. And it, it definitely seemed like consumptive, like there was like a desire to consume there in a way. Which was also true in the Wine Dark Sea, the idea of the main character, a man in one case and a woman in the other, being in a space where there's a lot of women who are handsy, I guess. Um, (laughs) Maybe want to eat you and maybe it's sex. Maybe they want your clothes. You don't really know if they're like witches or fairies or whatever. And that's actually not where he went with either of those scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I like that in the wine dark sea and the way it kind of subverts the, the sort of like Circe, like sorceress kind of thing. And like the contrast between the way that all the people on the Greek mainland where he was vacationing have this like contempt and fear and hatred for the women such that you do think like, oh no, there is going to be, you know, she's going to turn him into a pig or do, you know, or eat him or do something terrible. But none of the sisters do that. And I think that's kind of like an interesting way that Aikman sort of like, he's just so masterful at like setting your expectations up and then manipulating them, which any writer needs to be able to do. But I think especially for a strange tale writer, it just, it feels like he just has all the strands you know, in hand, it's just like weaving this tapestry and you just can't predict quite what it's going to look like. And I think that's why it's so satisfying. And I can't think of that many writers who are exactly comparable. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Sorry, I, I had forgotten about the dream of the lizards where the lizards are eating him, which was one, yeah. of, the, one of the funniest parts of yeah. the wine dark sea. Um, at some time during his sleep, he had a nightmare. He dreamed that lizards, not small blue ones, but quite large black ones, possibly 18 inches long, were biting <laughs> off his own flesh. <laughs> and then later in that paragraph, um, it's described as, he felt Greg felt it as a nervous frisson charging his whole body, half painful but half pleasurable. Well, don't the the women when he first shows up at the island, they say like you can never go back if they know that you've been here, they'll tear you apart. Yeah, and that feels like a threat at the time. Reading it, I felt at least that that they were threatening him, saying essentially, "We want to tear you apart," but then when you continue reading the story, it's actually true that they are right to fear the violence of the people in Greece and that he becomes right to fear their violence also. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, that's why this is sort of his, you know, like applying for a Guggenheim story or something. It's just like, here's what I'm talking about where he sort of seems to me to be saying like, you know, in this story, I will, you know, criticize conventionally held modern notions of property and ownership. Cause, cause there's all the, like, I agree. There is that like 60s, 70s, almost like Star Trek episode, you know, uh-huh. it's like a sexy space lady type of thing where like these <laughs> women are like, we, we want to have sex with you. And I think at first, even that, you know, I was like, because Shane brought it to me and I was like, oh no, did Shane pick like the only bad Aikman story? (laughs) Like, is this going to be really cringy? Um, 
but it wasn't. I think he's kind of making this point because like, you know, the first time he has sex with one of the women, he seems like he's expecting that it's going to be a relationship or that it's going to be like this, this monogamous possession or that maybe it's going to cause some friction with the other two sisters. But then he quickly sees like, it's no big deal to them. Like it's not, it's not meaningless, like, but it just meant what it meant. It was like nothing more than itself. And it's not going to mess with the balance of emotions on the island. And it's not going to like obligate two of them differently to each other than to the other two. And I just, I think that's, I don't know. It's just an interesting subversion of what I necessarily expected the story might be saying. Um, And it's also tied to how he, he kind of says like Greg at first is like, I'm afraid I'm going to be bored because there's no work for me to do and there's no books to read and I'm not going to be busy. And then he quickly comes to see like, actually, this is awesome. Like working all the time sucks. <laughs> it um it reminded me also of I think maybe then or like even twenty years earlier than the seventies version of these tropes, which is like the um post World War Two set of tropes from people who had been at war like soldiers, the the people who make tiki bars. <laughs> Like the, the set of impulses that they've seen something that seems both wonderful and also endangered. Yeah. Um, that they were not there necessarily in good faith, but they also thought it was amazing. Yes. Like that, that feeling felt like it was inside the story. And in a way I think, yeah. And it's there in the way, and again, you know, spoiler, like the way that, the paradise eventually gets wrecked seems tied to that. Like you get the sense that Greg was appreciating it and understanding its vulnerability. Like the Island was under threat. The women were not just paranoid, but that when he is confronted with this intruder and this person who has come there specifically to destroy the Island and destroy the women, he doesn't stop it. And it's not like he's happy it's happening. He just chooses not to wake them up or warn them And he kind of has this pride where he's like, well, I have been here not working, but maybe this is my chance to do something on my own or or do something to get credit for. And then it ends up being totally fatal to the whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like he's an 18 year old who was shipped off to war rather than like a colonizer or, you know, like his emotional relationship to that situation is not as aggressive as I think a lot of man comes to women's island paradise stories could be. Yeah, definitely. We never even talked about body horror. Do you want to talk about body horror at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I think, you know, so if I can like, so I'll share like one little thing about the next glade and this is where I think he's so good. Um, there's just this passage where he says, moreover, the woods always felt quite different when one entered them with one's entire family. The things that happened when one was with one's family were amazingly unlike the things that happened when one was not. It was this fact that made the transition between the two so upsetting. And I think that's, that's kind of like, there's so many things you could say, but I think this kind of is like a nice sort of end cap to what I think all three of us have sort of said. It's, I think Aikman works the transitions. Like he's so good. The reason his stories are sometimes horrifying and sometimes terrifying, but more often than not just strange in a super delicious way is because he's working that upsetting transition between 
what's normal and what's okay. And then what's supernatural. So. Yes. I love that. And he's like his just actual technical transitions in the prose are also (laughs) fantastic. That's such a great insight, Kathleen. Thank you. Um, And then, yeah, I think, you know, so I, I was going to sort of say, you know, kind of like alluded to it and I don't want to talk too much about like the political climate, but like when I read it, first, like when I read The Wine Dark Sea first, it was, you know, Shane brought it over and it was October 2020. It was right before the election and it was a very scary time. And I felt like, I don't know, for me, I always enjoy kind of like steering into the skid. And I I was like, yes, it's a scary time. I want to read something scary. But I would say that Aikman's not just scary. He's like unsettling. And it was kind of like a perfect antidote or countermeasure to to the real world we were living in but then I think it holds up too it wasn't just like a time and a place and to go to the body horror thing like you both know and like now listeners will know I I fell four weeks ago and broke my hand and that sucked so my hand's in a cast and it feels I was saying to Catherine before we started recording it feels very um Aikman-esque and transition-y like my hand feels like it's mine but also corpse-like and not mine and there was something to return to these stories now when I've been feeling really weird about my own body. It felt right. Like it felt, again, like steering into the skid. I was like, yes, Aikman is the person that I want to be, you know, in conversation with in my head as I negotiate this like dumb real world circumstance. <laughs> Can <laughs> I tell you something fun. weird about my hand? Yes. Yeah. Um, so during... During the pandemic, um, like the first few months of the pandemic, I I got this rash on my hands and it was on one more than the other, but I couldn't tell you which now because I can't remember. And that's part of the story. Um, and, you know, I feel like everybody tends to kind of react to stress in their own like specific way, like th- that's just what their body and their immune system does. So like I tend to get itchy <laughs> yeah. and get get hives and stuff like that. And so this wasn't like totally out of the ordinary that I would get a rash from stress. Um, and of course we were all washing our hands a lot. So I assumed it was like related to that and using hand sanitizer. But the thing is I got this rash that looked like so weird and unlike anything I had ever seen on my own body before that I like didn't understand it and couldn't process it. And like when it went away, I had formed no memory of it. Like I I can't describe it to you now because I have no idea what it looked like. All I know is that it was so weird. My mind refused to make a memory of it. And I think it's also that like you look at your own hands so much. So like you can't ever remember what your hands used to look like. You just see the new hands. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny that you say that because everyone tells me, you know, because I'm walking around with this very obvious injury. And so people hail you to be like, hey, I broke my hand one time, which I love because I'm like, give me your notes. Like, give me, <laughs> give me your hot broken hand tips. <laughs> one of their tips is like, don't worry, like this sucks. But like, as soon as it's over, you won't remember it at all. And I'm like, whoa. That's, That's true for me. I'm telling you, I don't remember the hand rash. I can't, I can't picture it, even though I was like yeah. staring at it for months. Yeah, <gasps> it's a thing. It's a thing. If I can, one more brief, I know we're coming up at the end, but one more brief hand story. It just feels like, why not? <laughs> Please. Um, I, went to, I went to a friend's birthday party on um, Saturday and that was kind of cool just unto itself because it was like, whoa, fully vaxxed, hanging out indoors. So that felt good and, and different. But at this party where there were only like 12 people, it wasn't very big. Three of us 
had injuries on our right hand. Like all, like three people had like either ACE bandages or a cast or something in like the exact same wrap around their right hand. I know. And so of course we all found each other and and commiserated. And and one guy had a rash, actually like a skin rash. One guy had had like a dermatological procedure where he had like some kind of grafting. And then I had my broken hand. And I feel like that was like an Aikman detail or like maybe one of, it was like an Aikman red herring where you'd be like, okay, this is a story. It's going to be about hands. And then he'd be like, nope. And it would go somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) The subconscious seems close to the surface in both of those situations. Yeah. Um, it seems like we should almost start a new podcast, like Hand Century. <laughs> yes. I'm in. <laughs> That was our episode on the Wine Dark Sea. Thank you, Kathleen, and as always, uh, to Adam Bear for our music and to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. <laughs>